Welcome to the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Will Robbins, the editor of NMA, and today we're talking about charity, specifically a brand new charitable foundation set up by a financial planner, designed expressly for financial planners to help facilitate greater charitable giving among mass affluent clients. I'm joined by said planner, Graham Price of Jerovian Wealth in London and founder of the new donor assisted fund, the Together Charitable Foundation, or TCF, that will be familiar acronym to advisors, and uh, Professor Paul Palmer, an expert in philanthropy from uh, City of London Business School. Hello to you both. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon indeed. So uh, from the top, tell me what you've created uh, and why and, and who's involved. If I uh, sort of take this in a couple of parts, if, if I explain um, how we arrived at this. So Paul and I worked together back in the midst of time uh, at uh, UBS and we were also involved in the compilation of a policy paper uh, which actually went to the Cameron uh, Clegg administration which uh, unfortunately wasn't very successful because <laughs> uh, some of the suggestions were deemed to be not in the uh, government's interest although we tend to disagree with that and the paper and the work that we did together at UBS was around, I'll call them the mass affluent, because we know that in this country, there is a great swathe of the population who don't give much to charity whilst they're alive. They do, however, give a lot in their wills. And this comes back to financial planning, lifetime cash flow modeling, at letting people know that they can afford to do things in their own lifetime. And the suggestion in the paper was around how tax reliefs can be used in a more beneficial and impactful way. Um, but whilst we're at UBS, um, UBS actually set up a donor advised foundation, of which I think Paul would tell me there's seven in the UK. I, I might yeah, be wrong. About that seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it, it was very interesting to watch the engagement with clients. So, from a financial planning point of view, uh, we talk a lot about coaching life life coaching but in reality um, are financial planners equipped and I don't mean knowledge wise although part of it may be that I mean just basic tools available to them to do that cradle to grave the whole journey for clients and I think because we've as a profession been led historically by assets rather than fees um, there's been a disincentive to advise clients on how they deaccumulate. So we haven't actively encouraged people to the level perhaps or extent that we should around their purpose, um, how to give their money away and maximize the impact. So the idea behind this was very simply to make it uh, create a donor advised foundation, an umbrella structure so that it can be as flexible and accessible as possible, created for financial planners, uh, by financial planners, and, and the access point being the key part. And, and Paul, perhaps you introduce yourself, uh, your background and mm -hmm. uh, your role in, in this foundation. Okay, so uh, the, the resting job, as I'm sure people like to refer to academia, is that I'm a professor in the business school at City University of London. Um, I, I rejoined the business school, I've been my PhD at the business school in the early 90s, and I rejoined the business school as a professor in the early noughties. 
And part of my role was to set up a suite of master's degrees and a centre for, for charity effectiveness. And that reflected, obviously, the university's origins in the city of London and the links with the livery companies, um, but also the fact that um, I'm primarily an educationist and I'm, uh, and I'm about the inclusivity of, um, of, of society and about, and indeed one of the, the main modules I taught and developed at the business school is business in society. I served on the United Nations Principles of Responsible Management Education Programme. And so I, I'm, what used to be called corporate social responsibility is, is, is one of my areas, but I have a particular passion and interest in the charity sector, in the delivery, particularly of the charity sector, in improving society, people on the margins, social inclusion, overseas aid, um, all the various facets that make up what we refer to as civil society. So that's my particular interest. But why I'm interested in this is, is that I'm also, uh, by background, I'm a chartered company secretary, so I have a financial services background, as Graham mentioned, UBS, and also um, my PhD is actually in regulation. So I don't get too many invites for crews speaking, as you can imagine. But um, the point what I'm, I'm particularly interested in, though, was um, I also sit on the Nonprofit Academic Centre Councils, the worldwide body. So I, I look at a lot of comparative studies, particularly around the world, patterns of giving, uh, who, who gives, levels of giving and by bands and all the rest of it. And I, I am convinced that in the UK, as Graham mentioned earlier about legacies, legacy is by far the single source of income for charities from the general public. But I'm also interested in lifestyle. And why is it that people give at the point of death? When giving, if you look at the, the history of philanthropy, the purposes, the psychology of philanthropy and giving, you know, to actually support things, as we know through the COVID thing, one of the things that people have talked about is volunteering, the sense of community. And to be able to give money away, to be able to give some of your wealth away during your lifetime is much more satisfying than, than giving it away at death. So I've been interested in that. I've been, and of course, as, as somebody from the financial services, you know, help. Uh, help create the, the charity accounting standards and all the rest of it. I've also been aware about efficiency, effectiveness, economy. And quite honestly, gift aid was a great uh, innovation, but there is a lot of confusion about how you give money away. There's a lot of confusion of when you should give money away. And there are real barriers at the other side of by people when they give money away. Will my money be spent on the purposes for which I'm giving? How do I know it's not going to be wasted? You know, um, journalistic colleagues, particularly in the last few years, a great friend of mine, Sir Stuart Everington, when his chief executive interview talks about the golden age of charity and press relations. Nowadays, the press is much more critical of charities than they've ever been in the past. But there's a whole set of challenges out there. And if you like barriers and all the rest of it, all of which get in the way of for the charities being able to deliver the best possible service and equally for an individual wanting to give and get the best possible satisfaction. So what TCF, uh, in my conversations, and it's been a 10-year journey with Graham on this. I mean, it's not been thought about overnight. I mean, this is over 10 years that we've put this together. What we wanted to do, and we look at that landscape, and I've particularly been impressed. I served on the Chartered Securities Institute's um, Ethics Committee for, for 11 years. We only meant to serve nine, but I ended up serving 11. Um, and so I got to know the financial planning community really, really well through that and wealth management really, really well. And I, I just feel that if you like wealth managers, 
planners are sort of sit over here and they're really great at putting all this together for that mass affluent group but somehow missing in there is that sort of bit that talks about philanthropy giving all of which adds that extra value to life and if we could educate and that's what tcs real purpose is and my great interest in this if i can through that educate the financial planning community then the potential um, um inflow of money to charities that desperately need it you know i mean government you know has been is not going to be very generous to charities in the next few years ahead the crisis the issues not just in the uk but around the world and all the rest of it issues around the environment um, social inclusion you know you can list them all as long as your hand or if not longer um, these are issues that need to be dealt with and you've got a group of people who potentially have wealth that is sitting there accumulating and if we can somehow get that synergistic relationship that brings that wealth and is able to utilize it effectively and efficiently and economically into charity, then surely that's going to be a win-win, which, you know, we're going for. Now, well, thank you, Paul. And I wanted to, so the next question is, I want to talk about this, this idea of the mass affluence and, and uh, different levels of wealth, but I think perhaps just as again, to just explain to everyone, how does the foundation operate? And just to explain or clarify what the role of a financial planner is intended to be in that. Okay, so the, the structure itself, so Together Charitable Foundation is a charity in its own right, but it's simply a vehicle to assist financial planners uh, help their clients with their philanthropic goals. So it is an umbrella structure and individual foundations hang off of that and that's why it is a donor advised fund donor advised foundation in the us this is a very very common structure that is used by financial planners with their clients and we'd like to try and achieve the same in in the uk so whilst we supply the administration through the foundation effectively the three of us could have each our own fund hanging off of it with different outlooks as to what we want to give money to and different time frames. Um, and that doesn't that doesn't matter. So the clients get to do all the fun bit of, of having their own charity, which is the grant making. The, the, the costly expensive part is all dealt with at that upper level. And not duplicated will. This is the important thing. So if you look at, with due respect to poor old um, now Captain, now Colonel Moore, right? You know, through just giving or whatever, raises the money. A lot of people, when they suffer loss or death or whatever, what they want to do is set their own charitable trust up. But the trouble is, there's already 163,000 plus charities in England and Wales in, already in existence. When you say, are you just recreating yet another charity? And the trouble and the tragedy is, is that the time you've paid the legal fees, got your trustees together, registered it all, you've probably coughed, you've probably used up about £10,000 in just registering the thing. Then you've got the ongoing costs all the way along of maintaining, filing accounts. So effectively, you know, that a great big administrative burden is sits there. And then maybe in 30 years time, when people and the original founders have gone and the original purpose has gone, it sort of gets smaller and smaller and smaller and eventually withers on the vine. And what a donor advised fund does is it takes away, as Graham described, all of that. 
the, you know, the setup costs have already been absorbed. The ongoing audit costs have all been absorbed. You can still have your name on it. So it, you, if there's a, you know, but also it also enables people, interestingly, not everybody wants to be known for, for giving away money. Some people like to give away anonymously. And what a donor advice fund does is it also enables people to be able to fund things that actually they might not want others to know about. And that's good as well. Perhaps you can explain already okay. what happens in, in what would normally happen uh, if you wanted, were to bring us a, 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 a pot of money to a charity and how much you'd have to give that charity to guarantee or to buy yourself uh, the level of control that people might might want and what well, level of control they can have with that. Okay, and this goes back to educating the financial planning community because this, this DAF is not available, if you like, for a member of the general public. There's already existing DAFs out there. This is not meant to be a competitor or a duplicator of existing DAFs. It is meant to be a, a, a vehicle for clients of the financial planning community. Right. So the conversation I'm having with you now would be not a conversation I would necessarily have with an individual. It would be the conversation I would have or we would have with other financial planners right. about how they themselves would educate their clients. So do you see the difference? Yeah, yeah. Very important. And I think that's the important thing to recognise about this. So in this particular case, um, we would begin by talking about charity regulation. We would be talking about the charity SORP, the Statement of Recommended Practice for Charities, and about the fact that charities have are called restricted funds, restricted donations, and how that works. We would also make it clear, though, that charities have to pay for their own administration and about full cost recovery. So one of the great myths, one of the great tragedies, and let me now get myself into terrible trouble and say this, is if we, we, we've just had um, uh, uh, Comet Relief. Now, Comet Relief's business model many, many years ago used to be that they would claim that every pound you give them, British Airways would do the same, every pound you give will go to the cause you wish to give it to. Now, that's fine if somebody else like British Airways corporately were picking up all the administration costs or in Comet Relief's co case, everybody used to donate their time or whatever for free. But at the end of the day, charities have to employ people. They have to employ administration and all the rest of it. So one of our key points would be to explain that staff have to be employed and they have to be paid. I mean... You know, one of the great stories was uh, Save the Children Fund many, many years ago, where its director general was at a party and somebody came up to him with the immortal words, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm the director general of the Save the Children Fund. And the person said, oh, it's wonderful. And what's your paid job? Now, this is when Save the Children Fund had just gone through the hundred million pound barrier. You would not run, you know, no hundred million pound organisation would be run by a volunteer. And at the end of the day, you might have a volunteer board of trustees, but the actual paid staff, you've got to employ people, you've got to pay them. And that's where the education comes in. So understanding that if you give a sum of money away, some of it does need to go on the charity's overheads, right? You need to give a percentage of that maybe to say, right, you can take a percentage of this. And then the big bit about restricted funds and, and going to funds then starts to come in because you say, right, and now I want the rest of it to go on that particular programme. And the education is, is maybe that you might want to, for example, want to do something specific. Well, let's find out what charity is doing that. And that charity may already have that existing program in place that can report to you. So we're not constantly replicating inefficiently 
the will. I mean, the great story, when I, when I worked in the charity sector in the early 80s, I remember going to a big charitable foundation and pitching to them an idea around uh, mothers who were drug addicts not losing their children. And I remember going in saying this would be the very first and most unique scheme in Western Europe. And the world weary grant funder looked at me and with the immortal words, she said, you're the fifth scheme to come in today. That's going to be the unique and the most unique one in Europe. And charities in themselves, particularly with government funding and others and donors, play this game constantly of reinventing the wheel. And that's what we're going to get over, hopefully. That's very interesting. And I just, I would just ask a, a, perhaps a slightly cheeky question to you, Paul. But it, it, be honest, are, are there maybe too many charities in the UK at the oh, moment? Oh, Will, I got into terrible trouble with that a few years ago with the now director of the NCVO when I wrote a, wonderful, when I wrote a, a piece in The Guardian uh, exactly saying that and about too much duplication. And uh, Dr. Carl Wilding, who's the director now, the other director, wrote back to me and said, but are there too many coffee shops on the street, you know, in the high street sort of type <laughs> thing? There is, there is two schools of thought on this. There's the school of thought that says, you know, let a thousand butterflies or whatever, you know, or a million, you know, whatever bloom. But there's yeah. also the efficiency side, you know. At the end of the day, remember, the, you know, as we are talking to financial planning, let's remember Gladstone's famous comments that one person, well, he's described it as medicals, but we'll, we'll use 21st century language now. One person's tax relief is another person's tax burden. And charities do enjoy tax relief and tax and, and tax investment. So there is a public interest argument on, on that as well. Uh, the, the question I sort of, uh, I, I, I floated earlier, we'll get onto it now, just, just, to, just as a sort of um, another grounding question, maybe Graham, you can tackle. It's just a, this, this point, I think I read in, in some of the information you sent me about uh, targeting uh, this a middle layer or a, a layer of, of, of clients you might describe as mass affluent. Um, and that there was, I think the contention there was that the very wealthy, uh, people we'd describe as, uh, as philanthropists, uh, you know, give, give money, uh, sort of, you know, they, they give a big proportion of their wealth, so they, 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 that, that happens easily. And then it's just slightly below that, uh, actually very common for a financial planning client, are for some reason, or the research seems to be suggesting, proportionally give less of their wealth. Um, I thought it was interesting uh, sort of contention, you've, 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 you've raised a couple of reasons why that might be uh, certainly within the context of, of financial planning and asset management. But I wondered if you could expand upon that out a bit, uh, what the sort of research says and what the reasons might be. I'm sure everybody on this, um, on this call listens to this when financial would have remembered the bond yield curve, uh, which they probably studied to death. Um, so here's, here's another one for you, but from the charity sector, and it's called the inverted U curve. And what the inverted U-curve shows is, is that people, as, as against a percentage of their earnings, right? So if, we, if you start at the very, very top, they give a much bigger percentage of their earnings. And the reason it's called the inverted U-curve is that <laughs> as you cascade down wealth, it gets less and less until you reach to another level, which is actually, the, the, believe it or not, the poorest in society, who, of course, in percentage terms, actually give away even more. So if you look at students, for example, they're remarkably good givers. So you have this inverted U-curve going on. Is there a committee that's making decisions about funding? I think yeah, you so, expressed there's an element of control from those who are giving the money. So yeah. perhaps explain, because it sounds like 
it gets going into a pool of funds, but the individual return donors yeah, so retain so control. So perhaps explain how that's so how that operates and so what decisions so made. Yeah. As Graham mentioned, the, the, the charity is registered by the Charity Commission in England and Wales. There are five charity trustees, Graham and I are two of them. The other three trustees are um, drawn from a mixture of charity expertise and from the financial services industry. So we have Karen Bradshaw, who is a barrister by training, previously head of charities at the Institute of Chartered Accountants England Wales, now the chief executive for the Charity Finance Group, which is the umbrella body for paid staff, you know, finance directors in the charity sector. Uh, Yogita Patel, who is a, a charities advisor at BlackRock, so you've got a strong institutionalised investment manager. And Yogita uh, co-authored with me the Good Financial Management Guide for Charities. And then finally, Paul Jackson, who, if you like, is midway between both, uh, both um, things. So he is the chief executive for the Hospital Saturday Fund, which is a cash plan. But he, uniquely, the Hospital Saturday Fund is actually owned by a charity. So you've got a, a fully regulated uh, financial services business uh, it, operating in both uh, the UK and, in, and on the island of Ireland, um, but also which is actually owned by a charity. And Paul's the chief executive for that. So we make up the charity trustees. And the way a DAF works is that you open the account, you put your money in, yeah, and then you make a request that you want to give it to, say, for example, say the children fund. And maybe they're working in a particular country. That would be your restricted bit at that point. Um, the charity trustees, our job would be um, it's at our discretion, because obviously we are now the charity trustees and you have given the money to the charity. But we would then follow your wishes. So we would check that the Save the Children Fund is a, is a registered charity. Clearly it is, that it's properly regulated and all the rest of it. But if that programme does exist, so we'd have done our bit of due diligence. And then depending, Will, if it was you, for example, you might say to us, well, I want, going back to your point about anonymity, now I don't want Save the Children Fund to know that I've given them the money. So it would just simply come then from us, uh, the do you know the TCF fund saying that here is a donation it'll be spent on these purposes and whatever plus any conditions or whatever we might want to put in depending on the size of the donation we might want an impact report for example if it's big enough if it's not then we wouldn't um, and uh, and or it might be that we're happy to say that Will Robbins you know through the TCF fund wishes to give you the following sum of money right and uh, yes Graham I was going to say, but in the main, um, this is not that transactional approach. But the point that should be added, I think, to what Paul's just said is that by having a donor-advised foundation, you create a disconnect between anybody who's looking at their tax position and the point at which you want to give money. Because the classic thing, of course, is, oh, um, I've received a bonus this year. Things are a bit better. I'd like to give something to a charity that I favour, could be a much smaller you know, regional or local one, and there may be nothing that you see project-wise that you you actually want to contribute to. The next year when you haven't got any money to give, um, they've got a fantastic project that you really want to back. And uh, you, you remove that problem because of course, you, you can park your surplus in a given year um, into the charity and then choose your timing of when you give the uh, donation. And this is longer term as well. So we, we often talk about um, succession planning and you know, discourse between the generations, that intergenerational 
dialogue and uh, wealthy people talk about uh, anchoring their children in society you know so there's a limit to how much you want to give perhaps to your your dependents but also it is a, it is a way of encouraging uh, family dialogue around finance but money is a as a force for good rather than just simple accumulation of wealth Graham, and that's uh, and that allows me to repeat one of my favorite phrases that uh, essentially what you're doing is stopping the tax tail from wagging the charitable giving dog last question on this section for you paul is just in terms of the operation of the of the daf uh, structure now it's obviously great that people can nominate the charities the way that they want to give and, and so on maybe a strange question um, and I hope I phrase it the right way, but will there, is there any sort of sense of a moderating influence or guidance when it comes to where the money's being given? Because I'm uh, aware, um, and as a point of disclosure, my wife uh, is a student, uh, I believe, of Paul's, or sits in his course, but I'm aware, I'm aware that often there can be a concentration of money to particular mm. causes. And, and for laudable reasons, a lot of money is given to ch cancer charities. As someone, you know, He's lost their father to, to cancer. I worry yeah. about it. I'm very, very glad of that. But nevertheless, there can be these, these sort of concentrations and uh, duplications maybe. So is there any, any idea that there may be some sort of guidance, at least information uh, given to people about that sort of thing? Well, well as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we won't be talking to the individuals direct. It will be through the financial planning community. So, when we, we're, so the plan is that we're going to be doing uh, seminars uh, and uh, for, for the financial planning community. So if we take an issue, um, you've given a few, let me give you an example, uh, another one, blind charities. You might, you know, about blindness. Hmm. So there's about, there's over 600 blind charities in England and Wales registered with the Charity Commission. Um, obviously some are very, very well known. Um, one, one involves a dog, the other one involves, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or whatever. Um, my so my got, first family pet was a retired guy dog. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, he ate the uh, he ate the food off my plate the first night. Exactly. Got to. He realised why he'd been retired. Yeah. yeah. So you know, so one of the things that I'll be pointing out is that you've got this great, you know, you've got this community, some of which are incredibly well-known names, others less known. And I think it goes back to what we're trying to say, Will, about educating the public about charity, because you know, in the same way that when we're going back to consumers, so after. As I said, Dr. Wilding had a go at me about there being too many charities and giving me examples of coffee shops. Some people like to go to big chains. Other people like to go to the individual, you know, coffee shop. So it's about that sort of same level of education and that we'll be providing to say, well, this goes back to knowing your client, finding out and having that conversation with them. You know, are you somebody that actually wants to give locally, for example, versus somebody who wants to give internationally? You know, because there's a blind charity that does international work as well. Um, you know, there, there is there is a, a diversity of choice out there. And uh, so I, I, well, one of the things I'm a great believer of, you know, and this is a, you've got to, you've got to bear in mind that you can't you can take the academic out of the classroom, but you can't take the classroom out of the academic. Um, but there's, a, there's theories around, for example, assumic information theory or signaling theory, which talks about how we make decisions. And of course, within the consumer world, there's lots of research about how a consumer makes a decision. Is it an informed decision? Is it a spontaneous decision? Is it, you know, whatever. And this equally applies to charity. You know, I defy a lot of people. I always say at Christmas, 
you know, it's very hard at Christmas to get to leave the supermarket and outside is a Salvation Army band playing. You know, you start to feel Scrooge-like if you don't put something in that box with those, with those wonderful people playing out there. You know, that's gut-wrenching from the heart. But it's also much more scientific, uh, you know, and informed uh, uh, ways of giving. And what this is about is educating financial planners so that when they sit down with their clients, so if you think of a typical two-hour session that a financial planner uh, that has with their clients, you know, and, and suddenly the last 20 minutes is about lifestyle and whatever, well, why can't that turn into a conversation about charitable issues and charitable wishes? And then because that planner would have been educated through our program about all those different opportunities. So if someone says, well, I'm interested in blindness, for example. So well, did you know there's over 600? No, I didn't. Did you have, you know, you can start to have that intelligent discourse and dialogue that really starts to bring out that person's wishes. And surely that becomes a great, it also becomes a great enrichment for the financial planner, surely, in their job as well. Well, it'd be good to hear your take on this, uh, Graham, of course, uh, from the, uh, you know, this, this, the voice of the financial planners here. I mean, I was going to ask what the incentive for planners to engage with this would be, but also perhaps you could explain a little bit more about you know, your vision of what, how these sort of things become part of a financial planning conversation and how they would enrich uh, a client's financial plan. Yeah, if we take a step back slightly, when there was the enlargement of charitable purposes, so philanthropy is an active decision. It's active, not passive, in the sense that it's during your lifetime. It can also be after your, you know, continue after your life, but it's decisions made during your lifetime. And it allows for a level of engagement, be that with the local community, as Paul said. So that might be through the arts, sports clubs, etc. So philanthropy is not just about people giving money. It's also about people who give their time. So it's people get a greater sense of enjoyment, a greater sense of purpose, studies show, through giving their time, money, to usually local projects. So to a large extent, I would argue that philanthropic endeavour is the main social glue within most communities in the, in the UK. So if, if we can enhance that, then so much the better. But there are ways in which using financial planning, uh, cash flow modeling, we can increase the impact that that client is able to have around their, their sense of purpose. And it's usually in retirement, to be fair. It, it is yeah. when people can give not just money, but time. Because frequently when people are hard at work, even if they're very successful people, they can only give money. They simply haven't got enough bandwidth to give time, but it does allow for giving time later on. So it's it's the full it's the full planning piece. Mm. How how have you? I mean, Greg, tell us how have you applied this with your own clients? Where did you start um, doing it? So from from our from our point of view as a business, we um, we only advise clients to do things that we're prepared to do ourselves. So for my sins, uh, I have my own donor advised foundation uh, and it's my foundation that's paid for the setup of this foundation um, but it, it does come back to okay um, what what is your purpose what do, what do you want to do it, it can't just be about money it's never just about money it's about what money can do for you 
and therefore try and explore that to the fullest extent possible. So without embarrassing Graham, well, he's walking the talk. So um, Graham's used his own, a, a, a fund he's got with another DAF at the present moment to fund the, you know, the creation of this charity. And then he, uh, the only thing we're discussing is, is what number should we give Graham on his account number? Should we let him be number one? Or should we perhaps give him 007? I'll go for three or four. I don't really care. <laughs> I'm a financial journalist. It may be, maybe in the, the, the documentation you sent me already. Can, can I ask how much that, that was, that, 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 money, that seed money was? Um, to, well, going back to Paul's comments about setting up your own foundation, uh, it's a five-figure sum. It's not just about giving uh, money. I uh, picked up our, our, our top 100 uh, documents uh, just now, really, because one of the things we looked at was how firms, so not, not really about their clients, but how firms had raised charitable char money for charity. Because of uh, ad advice firms, I think, it, as part of running a bit, you know, running a good business, the involvement of staff in charitable fundraising is very important. We do it here at CityWire as well. Um, and I think just just for the, the hundred that made the final list, I think they'd raised about two point six million between them, which for a collection of actually mainly very small firms uh, is, is probably a decent amount, but it's given a hundred hours per firm um, uh, uh, of their time uh, to, to charity, uh, charitable uh, efforts and, and things, which is almost more impressive. And it, what perhaps one thing to ask uh, is, is turning back to sort of what could be uh, the clients could do is, uh, you know, would there be opportunities for, Things like you know supporting charities in other ways with their expertise, introductions, um, skills, and things. Were there any any opportunities for that, or is that just getting too complicated? Or do you need to be That's, too that, big a deal to be? Uh, no, to no. I, th I think it's a fair question. It's certainly further down the line. One of the things that we will allow uh, to happen is you mentioned those those firms. Um, mm. We we can help make them more efficient because they will be able to set up their own donor advised foundation through this structure so right if you're going to advise right. clients so um jerovian will have their own donor advised foundation their own charitable foundation through this structure but then so can any other financial planning firm that wishes to do so this wasn't just set up for our clients yes it works for a, a particular segment of our business uh, but this is this is not a profit center for us um so we're not intending to target this in in some way to to make a whole host of money together charitable foundation is a not-for-profit organization so if there is any surplus we will be giving uh, an element of fees uh, effectively on a tithing basis uh, to nominated charities and if there's additional surplus to that uh, it will go into jerovian's own daf and that will be distributed uh, as the staff wish uh, and suggest. So I, I can't see why anybody else yeah. wouldn't wouldn't want to uh, run a similar structure. And okay, brilliant. Well, look, just sort of almost wrapping it up. But tell us about when this is when this is launching. Uh, yeah. So, so when when will you, you know, as a financial planner or financial planning firm, be able to start um, you, you know using this or, or accessing this? So the, uh, the partner, the custody partner that we're using is Premium. Okay. Uh, the, the launch date is 
uh, on the 24th. So the official launch is on the 24th of November. In order to access that, um, from December onwards, we should be in a position for uh, all financial planning firms that wish to do so um, to access that. From a custody point of view, making it easy, um, they would need to use, in this instance, the, the premium platform. So that that's simply the, the platform that we've started with. Um, okay. we, we can look further down the line at, at, at other platforms, but first of all, let's get everything set up and, and, and get rolling from, uh, from there. Fantastic. And I see uh, in, in, uh, attending the, uh, the launch event would be uh, operatic singer, Leslie Garrett, CBE. Uh, mm -hmm. How did she get involved? So um, this came through one of our trustees. I mentioned Paul Jackson and the Hospital Saturday Fund. So Leslie is the patron of the Hospital Saturday Fund, uh, the charity. She's the patron of the charity. And through Paul, we, uh, we approached Leslie and she was delighted. She, I mean, she, as you'll discover, you'll have to come in, Will, on the night to discover about Leslie's work in the charity sector, which is quite phenomenal. We'll absolutely do that. Philanthropy reminds me of a, 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 an illustration I just saw on the Worthstone website. Worthstone, of course, provide... Um, uh, I know Gavin very well Gavin, indeed, yes. Yeah, um, for, from um, uh, insights into, into sustainable investing. But I, I, it's, it's, uh, I think it's been re it's produced or reproduced elsewhere. But it's very interesting because, of course, it, it creates it gives a spectrum of, of investing, of impact investing, I suppose of um, sustainable investing and of course on one, the one end you've got what we call mainstream investing that doesn't take any ESG associated criteria into account but of course what the other end isn't the, the end the other end of the spectrum doesn't end with impact investing it ends with philanthropy itself which I thought was very interesting so perhaps that speaks to the timing of this launch as well given the the, the, the dramatic yeah. increase in interest we've seen in ESG and I think it, I think we are shifting along the dial um, I, I speak to a lot of other planners who are of the opinion that ESG will just become the standard and in a very short space of time as well. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of the asset managers out there would say that um, the, the G bit has been covered for quite some time, the governance. Uh, it's, the, it's the E and the S bit that uh, is getting dialed up. So I, I think for... For some asset managers, it's not a huge. It's not a huge jump. Um, it, to a certain extent, might be just emphasising what they are already doing in certain areas. But yeah, it, it's it's definitely it's definitely moving along that way. Um, the the investment side of it is uh, the trustees have to approve. So if if uh, somebody wants to use a particular model then it has to be signed off. Our intention is for there to be certain decency limits around charges as well, because if we're to make this more mainstream and more accessible, and it's not an accident that um, the initials chosen were TCF, uh, and it's not an accident that uh, the logo is a bridge, <laughs> because we're trying, to, we're trying to build a pathway into philanthropy for financial planning firms, but for their clients, for more people. And one thing you mentioned was uh, the, the conversation. This is actually a really crucial bit. There, there must be a piece or a planners can expect a piece on how to talk about this with clients, how to introduce it, how to handle the issues and how to talk yep. about it responsibly yep. uh, as well. 
and, and yeah, I think it's linking people in as well. Um, there are some planners out there already who do this very well, far better than I would do. And, and I think this is about exchange of best practice more than anything else. So well, what good looks like really. Yeah, very, inter very interesting, very important. Uh, okay, well, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing uh, seeing more more about that uh, in, in the future, I suppose. I suppose it's no, you know, it, it is very appropriate that this year, you know, this year that we've had uh, sort of culminates with this sort of launch. Uh, obviously, it's, it's had a huge. I mean, it's probably been a lot longer in coming than just this year, but of course, it just so happens, of course, that the COVID has has had has been, you know, has a had a very uh, harmful impact on the char charity sector itself, yeah. but of course, also awakened. Uh, among those who can, uh, a sense of, of of giving back and community that was perhaps lacking before. Yeah, uh, COVID is an accelerant, both both as a as a virus, but also within society for change and and making people, uh, yeah, reorder their priorities. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, I will leave it there now, Greg. Thank you very much. <laughs>